This is Inform Your Resistance with PRA, Political Research Associates. Tune in twice a month to hear experts, researchers, journalists, academics, and movement strategists explain some of the most significant contemporary threats to democracy from the mainstream and far right. Together, we break down the so what of these movements so that you can inform your resistance in the fight for a just and inclusive democratic society. Political Research Associates has been producing rigorous, long-form analysis on the intersections of right-wing strategy for over 40 years. With Inform Your Resistance, we distill what you need to know most. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Koki Mendes, Communications Director here at PRA. Today, I'm joined by PRA Senior Research Analyst Ben Lorber on his September 2022 attendance at the 2022 National Conservatism Conference, or NatCon 3, in Miami, Florida. We're airing this episode in the months before NatCon 4 to be held December 3rd through 5th in Washington, D.C. Hosted by the National Conservatism Institute, a project of the Edmund Burke Foundation, National Conservatism 3 was an influential convening of many of the right's leading politicians, intellectuals, influencers, and analysts who consider themselves post-liberal and, quote, see national conservatism as the best path forward for a democratic world confronted by a rising China abroad and a powerful new Marxism at home, end quote. In the words of former PRA editor and current collaborator Catherine Joyce, National conservatism blends, quote, extreme social conservatism with a skeptical approach to some forms of laissez-faire capitalism and a sharp hostility to both global or international authority and what they see as corporate-driven liberal cultural hegemony, end quote. Last year's NatCon 3 featured keynote speakers Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary President Albert Moeller, venture capitalist Peter Thiel, and Florida Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott. To help parse the politics, influence, and threat of the national conservatism movement, and to hear what it's like to be immersed in the NatCom environment, we're joined by Ben Lorber. Ben focuses on white nationalism and anti-Semitism, having worked as a journalist, organizer, and movement builder for over a decade. He regularly publishes breaking analysis on the newest and most influential formations of white nationalism in the U.S. You can find him on PRA's website or on Twitter at BenLorber8. Thanks so much for joining us, Ben. I'm just going to dive right into our conversation today. So I want to hear from you. Paint a picture for those of us who are grateful that you went behind enemy lines for us. What is the atmosphere of NatCon? Is it a large anonymous conference dominated by formal speaking events? Or is it a more familiar group of people who come together each year to rub elbows? What did your days look like during and in between scheduled events? Yeah, thanks, Koki. It's great to be here. So You know, the first thing that I realized when I walked up to the conference was I was struck that, you know, for 
a gathering where I expected to hear a lot of rhetoric against the elites, you know, the corporate elites, the Washington elites, the business elites, the media elites, the cultural elites. Um, this conference was held at a four-star resort hotel in Miami, um, where, you know, rooms were about, you know, $450 a night. And, you know, it cost, you know, $20 to get a drink at the bar afterwards. Um, you know, even with the, um, the block room rate, that you know the conference promised for its attendees you know to, you know a room was still over 250 dollars and so i got an airbnb nearby but it just goes to show you that uh the kind of like fervent anti-elite you know posture that that these folks love to project is kind of belied by the fact that they are some of you know the they're definitely among the elite in the u.s in many ways um so the conference was yeah i, I mean in many ways it, it was much like um you know your typical you know academic you know conference um most people wore suits there were around i'd say eight or nine hundred you know, people there, which, you know, conference organizers, you know, claimed was about two or 300 more than the previous year. And, um, yeah, it was not anonymous. You know, people had to register um, with their real names and show IDs. And, you know, press in particular had you know, glaring uh, bright red, you know, badges because I think they are very insistent on... Um, you know, their attendees not being surprised and knowing that they're talking to press people. Um, but it was, yeah, I mean, it was, th there were large keynotes, there were the, there were breakouts, you know, there were, uh, you know, many vendors lining the hall from, uh, you know, GOP insider orgs like American Moment and Republicans for National Renewal, which are organizing outfits that that work within the conservative movement to pull it further rightward and then to us uh, to provide some of the staffing you know muscle for conservative administrations and to endorse right-wing candidates there were think tanks both you know u.s-based right-wing think tanks the, like the manhattan institute james wilson institute as well as european think tanks and publications like the European Conservative or the Hungarian Conservative. There were right-wing media outlets like Daily Signal or Epoch Times. There were, there were Christian right institutions like the Standing for Freedom Center, which is a project of Jerry Falwell's Liberty University, which, you know, says it defends biblical principles, quote-unquote. You know, there was even a uh, an anti-woke children's book seller that sold kids' books teaching kids that there are only two genders and being gay is bad and stuff like that. So it was really much like a, you know, a typical academic uh, conference, except there was obviously an eerie, disturbing undertone, given that these are very powerful people who want to take away the rights of millions of Americans um, and institute what basically amounts to uh, a religious theocracy. Thanks, Ben. I think you paint a really poignant picture for us between the opulent hotel, the um, creepy right-wing folks in suits, and the sort of... Um, low-lying undertone of uh, of threats to our basic rights and humanity. Um, I thank you yeah. for sharing that uh, very clear yeah, yeah. picture with us. Continuing with our conversation, for our listeners, I'm going to share a few presentations from the schedule that jumped out at me. 
During the, the special main stage event, The Challenge of China, speaker David Goldman shared five myths about China and why they could get us killed. During the panel, Woke World Order, a documented fan of white nationalism, Darren Beatty, presented, Can One Be an American Nationalist? During a panel simply titled Race, Mike Gonzalez explained why the color that should concern us is red. And in a conversation on media and culture, Amber Athey presented How to Cripple the Left-Wing Media Machine. The final day of the conference concluded with one breakout group titled Securing the Integrity of American Elections. Ben, give us a sense of some common themes this year and which, if any, that surprised you. In what arenas should the left anticipate right-wing energy and momentum? Yeah, so like you laid out, Koki, there were there were many you know different lanes of conservative thought and movement organizing that were you know animating this conference. There were panels on um, you know why trans you know people and trans identity are th are threats to the moral order. There were panels on why critical race theory is a threat to the moral order. There were there were panels on why uh, you know the, the woke establishment is a threat to the moral order. Panels on why immigration is a threat to the moral order. So the common theme, you know, is that what they view as you know a natural moral order you know, is basically you know under assault um, uh, by the creeping forces of LGBT. LGBTQ rights, um, wokeness, political correctness, out of touch elites. You know, basically speaker after speaker hammered home the uh, the conviction that you know, you know, basically whatever named enemy it was, whether that was uh, you know Black Lives Matter, whether that was you know so called critical race theory, whether it was the sixteen. Uh, uh, Nineteen project, whether it was the supposed scores of teachers who are are transitioning students in school, like behind their parents' backs, all of these named enemies and and many more were all in their eyes unraveling the the sacrosanct you know natural order of what used to reign in America, right? The the nuclear family, a strong church. You know, traditionalist values. Um, you know, cis heteronormative gender roles. You know, all these they think are under assault by uh, by what they view, you know, very conspiratorially as you know a cabal of elites essentially who are perched atop you know, the commanding heights of culture, media, the the government, you know, economics. You know. Uh, who are kind of like arrayed against you know everyday Americans and traditional American uh, society, and that's really the message that's championed you know all across the conservative movement these days, from Fox News to the Christian right, you know, uh, and these folks kind of you know gave it a special kind of intellectual academic shine, but essentially they're they're repeating the same kind of culture war grievances that you see all across the right. These days, you know, they did you know land upon a number of specific policy proposals, right? They're they're celebrating um, the the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and they want you know, gay marriage to be next on the chopping block at the Supreme Court. Um, they they hammered home the importance of teaching the Bible in public schools. Um, they they adopted a bunch of belliger belligerent postures against you know China. Um, 
as Catherine Joyce outlined in the quotes you gave earlier, they want to kind of you know, replace the, the the GOP establishment, which they think is you know not fighting hard enough to conserve traditional America. You know, but the but the through line was anti wokeness. It seemed as if like speaker after speaker was just you know, kind of racing to outdo each other on who can kind of hit the wokely the hardest in their little ten minute speeches. Um, you know, they had many themes. You know. It, to get to your question around in what arenas should the left anticipate their energy and momentum, I think um, time and again, they talked about focusing on state as the battleground. And that's a lot of the reason why they kind of were all fawning over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who gave the keynote address, you know, during dinner the first night. They think that, um, you know, they know that, you know, their views, for example, you know, the overturning of Roe v. Wade or the, the, the desire to make, you know, Christian nationalism mainstream in America, they know those are minority views nationally, but they're confident that by by doubling down on certain states, you know, conservative states, right, where the, in their view, there's a majority of what they call, you know, biblical Christians or people with, you know, what they call Christian values or allies, um, you know, liberal anti-woke activists. They love to ally with, you know, those types uh, like Barry Weiss or Andrew Sullivan. You know, the, they're confident they can implement some of their Christian nationalist agenda at the state level. And so they really cheered on, you know, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who um, has advanced a lot of anti-LGBTQ policies as well as, as policies uh, against, the, you know, the teaching of critical race theory in schools, anti-immigrant uh, you know, policies. In fact, you know, at his speech, Ron DeSantis, you know, t- you know talked about... Um, how he's planning to transport immigrants in his state you know, to other states, to liberal states. And then that next week, we saw him do that horrific stunt where he bust or he flew um, immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. Um, so, you know, Ron DeSantis is angling, f- you know, to run for president in 2024. And this is the crowd that, that really supports um, him. They also like really focused on schools as a battleground, which is what a lot of the right is focusing on. They were enthusiastic about running in school boards. They they time and again hammered home the message that you know, out of control professors are kind of indoctrinating, you know, kids with critical race theory or, or like a radical LGBTQ agenda. Um, yeah, so I would say that Christian nationalism is also like one of the the big areas that you know at this conference and across the right we're going to see a lot of energy and momentum moving forward. Thanks, Ben. Uh, you paint a bleak picture, but a very focused um, one. The left has a lot of opportunity to intervene with strategies, um, especially when we identify the actual locus of power contestation, as you just did for us. Um, you mentioned right at the end there Christian nationalism and sort of the through line of the moral order that is under threat in the view on the view of the right. Can you talk a little bit more about the Christian nationalist vision put forth at NatCon three and what it might actually look like in practice? Yeah, so uh, you know, in some ways it's difficult because a lot of this, the the speakers at this conference. Uh, were themselves very vague about like what it might look like in practice. You know, uh, the, they were very circumspect. You know, the funny thing is that 
the leader of, of the national conservatism movement, um, an Israeli academic named Yoram Hazoni, is an Israeli Jew. And he, you know, in his eyes, the, the kind of, you know, uh, theocratic, you know, nationalism that currently reigns, um, you know, in the far-right government of Israel is a model for what can happen um, in the U.S. And so... Uh, the, the NatCon intellectuals will wax poetic about you know, Christian values, you know, that should be, you know, in public life, you know, like what should, but they're, the, they're a little uh, unclear about what like a, you know, a Christian public life should look like. They want prayer in schools. They, um, they want, you know, to empower the government to enforce immoral virtues in their eyes, which, you know, you know, basically looks like state-enforced repression of LGBTQ rights in the public square, at least. Um, and many speakers at NatCon seem to go further and even to echo dominionist talking points. For example, the benediction given by a pastor one morning, you know, asked, asked God to extend his dominion over this nation and turn the nations into like, you know, your footstool. In some ways, you know, these folks are a little more timid than someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who will come right out and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, you know, nationalist. Yeah, there should be no separation of church and state. A lot of these, you know, intellectuals are more concerned with kind of, you know, tracing a narrative on why why Christianity was uh, a foundational, you know, to the American founding or, or talking about in the abstract the proper role that Christian virtue should play in the public square. But at the end of the day, it, it comes, you know, back to their support for for politicians like Ron DeSantis, who really just promised to use state power to vigorously crack down on you know, marginalized communities, it comes down, to, you know, to using state power to um, to attack trans rights, to enforce a cis heteropatriarchal vision of gender and the family. So yeah, they are a little vague about it. And the other interesting thing is that, you know, there's actually a heavy um, Orthodox Jewish contingent um, at NatCon. There were many Orthodox Jews who were there. As I said, you know, NatCon's founder, Yoram Hazoni, is himself an Israeli Jew. Um, and I actually spoke to to several of these uh, Orthodox Jews who were at the conference. I myself am Jewish, and as a Jew, I'm very concerned about, you know, a Christian nationalist America and what that could mean for the rights and freedoms of religious minorities. Um, and basically, these Orthodox Jews were very unconcerned about that. In their view, the main enemy is liberalism and secularism. And they think that the pervasive American uh, you know, secularism is a threat to the traditional Orthodox you know, Jewish way of life. And they said, you know, look, we understand the, the, that there's you know, not a great you know, history when Jews live under Christian rulers and Christian nations. Like we understand that things got rough, you know, for many hundreds of years there in Europe, but like we're willing to take our chances now because we think that, you know, liberalism and secularism is the main enemy. Um, and that was like really disturbing to hear, you know, they are, um, they're willing and eager to build an open alliance with these Christian nationalists. Um, and most of the Christian leaders at NatCon, you know, they talked a big game about, you know, respecting the, the like religious minority rights. Um, but you could also s see moments at the conference where, for example, uh, one speaker talked about how um, 
if you know cultural Christianity can be enforced in the U.S. and what he means by cultural Christianity is uh, you know like you know crosses in public squares I would imagine you know like more uh, more vigorous in displays of Christianity in government and in the public you know he said the cultural you know Christianity can be a kind of pre-evangelism that can help to kind of. Uh, you know, bring more and more people to the good news of Jesus, right? And so you really can see the way in which, um, like, I don't really feel comfortable or safe that, you know, this, if if they got their way in this country, that religious minorities would really be tolerated. I think it's very easy f for even these kind of, like, more mild forms of cultural Christianity to very easily tip over into a more kind of, you know, aggressive, you know, um, you know basically Christian theocracy. Fascinating, uh, and certainly a major gamble on the part of the Jewish Orthodox leadership. I want to stay with sort of the the purported pluralism in these spaces. In looking through um, the event materials, it was very clear that the organizers of NatCon were careful to include just enough women and non-white men to present a so-called colorblind, inclusive face of contemporary conservatism. Beyond these tokenized speakers, were there other indications that the national conservatism movement is building a multiracial right in the way that uh, there's a sort of a willingness to, at, at face value, work with, for instance, a religious minority group? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I definitely agree with you that um, th they want to make the veneer of a multiracial Right. You know, they, um, the panel on race that you mentioned was almost exclusively, I think, led by educators of color um, and was was mostly devoted, you know, to saying that CRT is racist and the left is racist because like the left is talking about race all the time. And we, really what we have to get behind is a, a post-racial America, like we focus on the American dream, et cetera. Um, but the conference was still, you know, overwhelmingly white. Uh, you know, most of the attendees were were white men. Um, large contingents of like, you know, young white men, many of whom were were active in, in young Republican groups or on their college campuses, are the current and future staffers of right wing think tanks and policy organizations, or elected officials or political candidates. Um, it was an overwhelmingly white crowd, and um, you know, so you know, so like much of the right, you know, they they do talk a big game about you know building a multiracial working class movement. But at the end of the day, I think they know who their base is, and you know, in talking about critical race theory, and talking, you know, in demonizing Black Lives Matter, you know, they often made reference, you know, to you know anti-white bias in the media, supposedly, right? And so I think they were very kind of delicate about. Uh, you kind of plucking the cords of white grievance without really going out and saying it. The other thing I noticed at the conferences, uh, NatCon is very insistent about, you know, publicly opposing white nationalism. And part of that um, is genuine. I think, you know, Yoram Hazoni um, is Jewish and he understands, you know, very clearly that the hardcore white nationalist movement is anti-Semitic, you know, at, um, at the first NatCon conference in 2019, you know, they 
They rejected several white nationalists who who applied to attend, you know, leading leading figures in the white nationalist movement, like Jared Taylor, Peter Brimelow, Patrick Casey. And this led to white nationalists, you know, really demonizing NatCon, and they still do. They, you know, white nationalists, hardcore white nationalists, think NatCon is kind of, you know, actually betraying the white race by kind of trying to institute a colorblind kind of civic nationalism. But at the conference, you still saw many, you know, kind of, you know, facets of white nationalism peeking through. For example, the panel on immigration was staffed almost entirely by staffers, uh, you know, from the Center for Immigration Studies or um, CIS, which is, you know, a white nationalist anti-immigrant think tank that was founded, you know, by a white nationalist named John Tanton, who was explicitly concerned with with reducing non-white immigration in order to, you know to preserve a white demographic majority right so so natcom will harp on the virtues of of western civilization you know the american constitution they'll claim their nationalism is non-racial but you know at the end of the day they want a total immigration moratorium and when i went to that a panel on immigration basically their their focus was on reducing even all legal immigration because they want to preserve American culture. And the way that the, the CIS analysts broke it down, they literally would say that, you know, that early immigrants from Europe you know, preserved American culture because it was, you know, just naturally in their culture to, you know, to bring over aspects of European culture, such as order and virtue into the U.S. But, you know, immigrants from other continents have a fundamentally different culture, so they will erase and destroy American culture. So really, the um, the racialist implications are there very clearly, um, and there are other examples I can go to. But I think you know, um, you know, groups like National Conservative do claim to be building a multiracial right or a post-racial right. But at the end of the day, um, it's a project that you know flirts disturbingly close to white nationalism. Thanks, Ben. I want to in a minute, touch on what it's like to be immersed in that kind of rhetoric day in, day out. But before we go there, you mentioned the demographic of the audience. You yourself are an expert on the far right, particularly in newer Gen Z-led far right movements. Was NatCon a continuation of the pervasive trend that you've been documented here at PRA, that the far right is pulling the Republican Party further rightward? And that centrist conservatism really is a thing of the past? Yeah, very much so. And Nakon says that explicitly. They think that the the old guard of the GOP is is too committed to economic neoliberalism, which um, in their their view, um, by shipping jobs and companies overseas has hollowed out the American middle class and by bringing in too many immigrants has destabilized American society. They think the old conservative, uh, you know, guard was, you know, too concerned with, you know, interventionist kind of neoconservative, you know, foreign policy. They think that the old conservative guard, you know, one thing they repeat a lot is, you know, old conservatism didn't really conserve anything, right? They think that that Mitch McConnell and the Republican establishment haven't fought the culture war hard enough. And so by becoming more accepting in some tokenizing ways of LGBTQ rights, for example, the GOP is helping to destroy conservative America or by by having, you know, some small, you know, element supposedly of, of pro-immigrant policies 
you know, here and there, maybe you know, pursued by the Bush administration at certain times a couple of decades ago. The the you know the old guard conservative movement hasn't conserved you know, the traditional American nation, right? So their the their project is really to institute a new consensus on the right. They think that Trump was just the beginning. They liked that Trump you know wanted to pull the U.S. out of like multinational trade deals and multinational uh, like organizations like the WTO or the UN. They liked you know Trump's fervent American nationalism. Um, and they want to go further with that. They want to basically pull the GOP, you know, further rightward. And part of that um, is uh, some appeals to economic uh, nationalism. Like they borrow some things from the left, right? They borrow a kind of like watered down talking point that you might hear from Bernie Sanders about like, we need to revive, you know, American industry, more American jobs. We have to help the working, the working class, right? Over and over again, they called themselves a working class movement, which is absurd, you know, given that, you know, they were at a four-star resort hotel and I couldn't get a drink at the end of the night for less than $20, right? But, you know, they called themselves a working class movement. They claimed to want to revive dying American industries. Um, but really the meat of their agenda um, is a culture war. And they think that the old conservative establishment um, isn't you know, fighting that culture war hard enough. Um, and they're also, you know, they, um, they very much are very close to, you know, to the mainstream at this point. You know, for example, um, one of their keynote speakers was the president of the Heritage Foundation who got in front of everybody and said, you know, basically, I'm with NatCon now. He basically said something like, you're not joining my movement, I'm joining yours, right? So if you have the president um, of the Heritage Foundation, if you have like uh, Ron DeSantis, I know who's, you know, widely considered a possible GOP frontrunner for president, if you have, they basically are really right at the gates of the mainstream, you know, to the point where some conference attendees, I heard them say, you know, how is this conference really that different, you know, f- from a Turning Point USA conference or from a from CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference? So they're, they're really straddling the line. And while some other factions of the far right, like the white nationalist movement, can be said to, to still be pretty far afield of the conservative mainstream, at least in some ways, I would say NatCon is really right at the gate of the GOP establishment or perhaps already there. Thanks, Ben. Uh, that was a very succinct overview of uh, sort of how it fits into the larger ecosystem on the far right. As has been clear throughout this conversation, you are excellent at summarizing sort of the right-wing talking points, the major trends and themes, uh, the agenda, the strategies being held in this space. For those of us on the left and in the social justice movement who do not track the right as closely and as intimately as you, we want to know what is it like to be in in person right-wing spaces? What is the energy like in the room? And how does it impact your feelings of well-being and safety, especially in places with the veneer of respectability? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question. I mean, I, you know, I talk a lot with other researchers, you know, other people who look at the far right, you know, regularly of how do we stay, um, how do we keep our heads afloat? How do we take care of ourselves doing this work? And especially being in person, it's rough. Uh, you know, there were nights when I, um, 
I would get back to the Airbnb and I would just collapse and I would feel so exhausted. And I would realize that I was just, you know, it's, I think I'm pretty good at disassociating in the moment. And I think it's enabled me to do this work for like over three years is that I, you know, you know, people say they have a thick skin, right? But really what that means is you're just, you know, kind of have evolved really good strategies, to, you know, to disassociate in your mind from the horror of what you're seeing all the time. But it's rough being in person. I mean, you could, researchers like myself spend a lot of our time, you know, behind a computer kind of looking at these movements um, on social media. You know, even if you watch, you know, videos of speeches, it's not the same as being there um, in the room. And the energy uh, of this crowd in particular, you know, they were pretty exuberant. They were pretty um, excited. Like these these folks like to say that they're the underdog, right? They like to take a posture of victimhood and say that the left has this like, you know, an overwhelming power over them and they're kind of poor little victims like punching up. But I think they they know that they are, are winning. They know they have like, you know, momentum in this country. They know they're close you know, to the halls of power and they know that, you know, their movement is doing well. And so I think they were um, invigorated. And it was, you know, it's disturbing to hear the the cheers from the crowd or the people going, woo, you know, when Ron DeSantis would talk about, you know, using state power to to restrict LGBTQ rights, you know? Um, so I think there's just, you know, and I walked around in that space with a lot of privilege as a cis, you know, white um, white dude who I wore a suit, you know, because I thought that it would, you know, make me look more respectable to talk to people, right? And I think it did. I think it worked. Um people were very willing to talk to me. It was very strange to talk to some of the people who I've written about. Like I actually like met people at that conference who I've written about um, and they recognized me. I recognized the, them and we talked and it was, uh, that was the first time I had done that. Um, and it was, yeah, very strange. So yeah, you know, like I think I did feel safe, um, you know, in that room. Like I was at a, you know, four-star res resort hotel, you know, surrounded by people who were, you know, you know, dressed in suits, you know, who were there to network, you know, who were there to maybe you know, get a cushy job at the Heritage Foundation. So I didn't, you know, I didn't feel like a threat to my physical safety, which again, also may be related to me being a cis white dude. But, you know, I, I didn't feel safe, uh, you know, as a person like living in America who cares about the direction of this country. Like I felt more of like a slow burning fear for you know the 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 place that we live in and the people I care about very dearly and for many of my own communities and um just you know like sitting with that I think it's a thing we're all sitting with the fear that the direction of our country and what you know, what direction our country is going in I think it hits hard when you're in those spaces and like and listening for many hours to them kind of like talking themselves up you know as they march towards power Thank you, Ben. Thank you for sharing that with us. And, you know, ultimately, thank you for going so that we understand what we're up against, what the movements look like inside, from inside, not just from behind a computer screen. Um, continuing with you as a researcher and uh, analyst expert in this movement, what can our listeners look forward to from the pen of Ben Lorber? How does your experience at NatCon this year factor into an analysis you're currently working on, on movements you're tracking, and what major projects should we be on the lookout for? Yeah, well, you know, at PRA, we're currently, you know, working on, um, 
a project looking at the the spread of far right ideology across the right as it's manifesting um, around the 2022 midterm elections. So we'll be releasing soon a map that tracks far right candidates and tracks far right ideologies like conspiracism, um, anti LGBTQ bigotry, you know, Christian nationalism, uh, you know, kind of looking at candidates who espouse these ideologies as one, you know, metric for how they're spreading in our society. And we're also looking at other metrics like bills being introduced in state legislators around the country, um, you know, opinion polls. Um, you know, I've been writing about the you know, Gen Z far right movements for a while, like, you know, the white nationalist America First Groper movement um, and you know some other you know groups that are are basically adjacent to white nationalists but trying to move some of their politics more mainstream in the conservative movement and yeah being at this conference it gave me a glimpse into the world of 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 conservative operatives who maybe don't tweet that much and who stay out of the the public sphere, but who are very intricately connected to each other and work behind the scenes, you know, to pull the GOP, you know, further rightward, you know, election by election, state by state. Um, and so I'm, you know, going to be looking into, um, you know, some of these, you know, some of these groups and individuals often who are very young, often they're just out of college or still in college, um, who, you know, are really kind of inheriting the momentum of the MAGA movement and uh, of Christian nationalism and trying to, to institutionalize it. And I think that's where a lot of the energy is headed on the right. And um, so, yeah, we should see some more stuff on the horizon that myself and the many um, other amazing researchers at PRA are working on in that lane. Well, as a seriously biased fan of your work, Ben, you consistently have your finger on the pulse of what is nascent and what are um, less well understood threats on the far right. And once again, your analysis that you've shared with us today really demonstrates uh, just how well you understand the implications of uh, these movements in a broader political ecosystem. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today, uh, to be on the PRA podcast and informing our resistance uh, because we resist, we must. Uh, so thanks. Thanks again so much. Thanks so much, Koki. It was, it was great to talk with you today. In this episode, Ben mentions a map that tracked far-right candidates and far-right ideologies in the 2022 midterm elections. That map was published in a two-part analysis and is now available on our website under research or by searching for a bid for power. We have also included links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Inform Your Resistance with Political Research Associates. Today's episode was hosted by me, Koki Mendes. Our producer and fact checker is Olivia Lawrence Wildman. Harini Rajagopalan created our communications and marketing materials, and Frank Lawrence, our music. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe. And the best thing you can do to help us is tell your comrades about the pod. Resisting authoritarianism is just better with friends. Until next time. <laughs>